There's no problem too big or small, no issue too hot or cold, and no subject these gentlemen won't talk about. Let's head into the lab to see what they're working to figure out today. Let's get into it and get down to it. Welcome to Figure It Out. This is George Grombacher. Joining me, as always, is Centauri Minor. Hello, folks. Helping us move from awareness to action this week is Arizona attorney, Mr. Tim Barnes. Welcome, Tim. Thank you. Enjoy being here. So, Tim, you were involved in a court case here in Arizona that got onto our radar where a golf course went out of business, a developer attempted to build homes on it, the existing homeowners said, no, thank you. Um, And so we wanted to talk a little bit about not necessarily the specifics of that case, but how the whole thing played out, how it was adjudicated, and should people ever find themselves in a similar kind of a situation, what they can expect. So I guess maybe that's a good jumping off point. And being uh, an amateur in pretty much every phase of my life, my amateur attorney wisdom tells me that there's a method for looking at a problem called IRAC, which is Issue, Rule, Application, and Conclusion, and I was hoping we could use that lens to, to, to look at our conversation today. Absolutely. Excellent. So take it away, if, 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 if you don't mind. What, what, what was the situation here? Well, in uh, this particular uh, situation arose in uh, Ahwatukee uh, here in the Phoenix area. Uh, it's not necessarily uh, unique by any means because there's been any number of circumstances like this, but some homeowners uh, were concerned about the fact that a golf course in Alatuki was not being properly maintained. And then suddenly in 2013, the golf course was closed by the then owner. And the homeowners were obviously quite anxious about why that happened and what was going to happen because it seemed clear the owner was going to sell the property to a developer, which they didn't want because it had been a golf course since the late, uh, early, early eighties, I should say. Um, and, and so it really came down to what could these people do to, uh, force the issue with the, the, the owner of the golf course. And I was asked to look at the circumstances. Um, and in doing so, I took a look at a, um, what's called a restrictive covenant. Uh, a lot of, uh, there also can be known as CCNRs, which are conditions, covenants, and uh, restrictions. I just shortened it from CCNRs to restrictive covenant. But there was a restrictive covenant involved, and I told the homeowners that that restrictive covenant required the, uh, the property to be used as a golf course and to be kept open. And I suggested that they file a lawsuit to um, sue the owner for breach of the contract because a a restrictive covenant in Arizona is considered a contract uh, between the parties to that uh, covenant um, and ask for an injunction to restore the golf course. And that was the whole premise of the lawsuit. All right. So the issue at hand was... Is it okay for a third party in this example, the developer, to come in and, well, it's okay for them to buy the property apparently, but is it okay to, for them to use the property for anything other than a golf course? 
Exactly. And that's, that's, uh, that really was the nut of it, George, is that uh, there was a particular provision in the restrictive covenant that, that limited the use of the golf course, or limited the use of the property to a golf course. And as it turned out, there was also a provision in there that uh, the owner of the course would comply with a set of Arizona statutes that deal with golf course valuations. And under those statutes, uh, so long as property is being used as a golf course and the owner of the property files annually certain reports uh, with, with the assessor's office to show how many rounds of golf that are going on there, and then, then the owner of that property is going to get taxed at a substantially lower uh, tax rate uh, than it would if it were some use other than a golf course. And so the combination of the restrictive covenant requiring the property be used as a golf course in conjunction with the requirement that the property be in compliance with the statute, the golf valuation statute, gave me the argument that I needed to make that the uh, owner was in violation of the restrictive covenants and, and, uh, and, and, and was the basis for the lawsuit. Okay, so got it. And this is a question maybe, maybe you're able to answer, per, perhaps you're not. How, how common are these covenants to, I guess, to, to golf courses just in general? Uh, not particularly uh, common. Uh, this one, interestingly, was actually drafted by the original developer of that particular area of Ahwatukee back in the uh, very early 80s. Um, and, but, but I've found that there are not a lot of them, but they are not, they're not, they're not unique either because I'm aware that there are other similar types of, uh, restrictive covenants on golf courses around the state. I don't know that they all read the same, but, but, uh, because that's a function of what the original developer drafted and then, and then amended over time. But even without restrictive covenants, there are circumstances, and there's a, an Arizona uh, Court of Appeals decision from the early 80s in a situation in, in Tempe at the Shalimar Golf Course where there was not a restrictive covenant, but the golf course had been operated for a period of decades as a golf course. And the uh, someone came in and bought that golf course and wanted to turn it into developing it into property. The homeowner sued, saying, well, we have an implied restrictive covenant. And the court said, yes, in fact, you do. Now, I've oversimplified that ruling and the facts here, but, but the concept is there, that there doesn't have to be necessarily a specific written restrictive covenant if there's been a golf course or some other use, not just golf course, that, that the court can say, well, there's an implied restrictive covenant on the use of the property. And Tim, uh, you, you walked through it a little bit, but walk me through why, what is the point of this? So is it just that a community would always have that certain use there? Is that why the developer would put that covenant in there? Yeah, you know, that's an interesting question because a lot of times, and, and I, I'm, I don't, as a rule, represent developers, so I can't say I'm speaking from, from knowledge, Santori, but, but at the same time, um, you know, that's, that's obviously what the intention was. This particular covenant was originally a really simple document, just a one-page, not even a full-page document, 
just saying we're always going to comply with the statute for a period of years. Ultimately, after it was amended several times, then the owner of the property created a really substantially expanded restrictive covenant. And I can only think that the, 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 the benefit was intended to be preserved for that community. And, and that uh, is why most of these kinds of provisions are drafted. There's, it's a benefit to the community. But a lot of developers also don't like to be bound by it for as long as this one happened to be. So that's the part that was a little unusual that I found, anyway, in my experience. Yeah, well, I could certainly understand why a developer would not necessarily be excited about that. And I guess... I guess it's a little bit of a surprise that, well, and, and perhaps it's not, that a developer would would purchase the property and then find out afterwards, after being sued and having to go through the whole proceedings, that they weren't able to do what they wanted. Um, is that just, and, and I know I'm asking you to guess and speculate, is that just a matter of not doing your due diligence or just being hopeful? I don't hopeful? think so. George, you know, I, I really don't think so at all. Uh, and I don't want to ascribe anything to uh, the owner beyond what, what um, uh, well, I really don't want to ascribe anything to the owner, but there's, it's not a mistake that you buy something and, uh, and, and find out in the due diligence period that it's subject to a restrictive covenant. Uh, because these are recorded and generally in due diligence, especially on the kinds of projects or sales that we're talking about here, there's a fair amount of looking to see. So there's an understanding. Uh, because in our case, uh, I filed the original lawsuit in 2014 against the then owner who had closed the golf course down in 2013. In 2015, the, that owner that I had sued sold the property to a developer. And <laughs> there was a period of several months due diligence and although it took me to get uh, an order from the court to comply with a subpoena, when I got all of the underlying documents from the sale documents, the, there was a great deal of discussion in the, the purchase agreement acknowledging that my lawsuit was pending, that, that they may have to comply with this, and just, I mean, it was just, they just papered it with, yeah, we know this is what we're supposed to do, but that was the decision that developer just said, I know what it says, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to do what I can to make sure it doesn't, uh, doesn't stay that way. Fair enough. That's who we ultimately went to trial with. Got it. Okay. So you, you, obviously there was the case that you were involved with, and then there was the second case with the Shalimar golf course where it was a very, very similar issue, if not the same issue. The rules of the case, going back to this Iraq um, acronym, the rules were uh, different. In, in one, there, there was the covenant. In the second, there was not the covenant. But then the application of it, uh, the application and eventually the conclusion was the same because yeah. in the Shalimar case, they'd been operating as a golf course for long enough that the judge or whoever made the determination made the decision that it's been long enough, and so therefore we're going to keep it as such? Absolutely. Absolutely. And the, the conclusion was more so in the case of the, um, of the Shalimar case, the, the 80s case. They said, look, this is what the people bought this property expecting. 
This is what they were told, you know, in the sales documents as to what was going to be happening. And therefore, uh, you know, it's the community's expectation and that I'm the court upheld. Got it. All right. So perfect. I I think that that's an excellent explanation of that. If we could just take this um, to just just a fictitious fictitious example, um, just so I can sort of understand. Somebody buys a home, and in the example, if it's on a golf course, perhaps there was some kind of sales document or some kind of a sales pitch made where live on a golf course, your 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 backyard's going to back up to to the 18th hole or whatever. But what about the case where somebody buys a house and there are no big, tall buildings next to it, but then a developer comes in and buys a shopping center that was maybe there and they want to put really tall buildings? Is is this a similar kind of a thing where they should have their expectations that it was always going to look the way that it was? Or does the developer have a right to, now that they own it, put whatever they want on there? You know, that that issue is not completely straight up and down the same. No, I'm, I'm the sure only not, way but... <laughs> it could be the only way it could be is if if the the property were the developer that wants to build the high rise or change the whatever whether it's a high rise or something else, bring in commercial. All that property around there would have to be subject to a restrictive covenant that did not allow it in order to stop it using a restrictive covenant. Well, Short of that, generally what you've got is is there's certain zoning regulations that the developer may need to ask to change the zoning to allow a taller or bigger building. And then the city uh, gets involved, and, and, and it's not so much a, a, a lawsuit circumstances, a lot of pressure brought by the surrounding homeowners because in the most, for the most case, in zoning circumstances, the city or the, the, the agency doing the zoning has to look at what, what's good or bad for the community. And I use that word in quotes or that phrase in quotes. Sure. Yeah, well, I appreciate that very much. So so it's always a matter of, of just understanding what, what the issue is, figuring out what in, what, what in fact the, the pertinent rules regarding the case are, and then you then apply those to figure out how how it's going to match up to the facts of the case, and then the conclusion takes place. Um, right, and and in that process, though, it, it's 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 understanding the rules and the application part just comes into just sort of expanding sometimes your mindset on what should or shouldn't be included within that rule, or how you might best use some variation on the theme of that rule in applying it to fit your circumstance. Because, you know, most of these are not always straight up and down cookie cutter rules that you can just look at and say everybody understands what the rule is, you know? So to me, that's, that's where the thinking comes in and understanding how best to use that uh, rule and understand that, you know, the rule may be a little broader than the way it's being expressed or a little narrower, depending on your point of view, I suppose. And Tim, um, I would love for you to just share, uh, I was looking at your, your profile for a little bit earlier. How, how many years of experience do you have in the legal profession? Like how long have you been a lawyer? 
I've been practicing since September 29 of 73, so it's going on 46 years later. Well, the day before <laughs> my wife's birthday. Quite a bit of time in the sector, um, and you obviously have a lot of wide range and expertise in different facets of the law. But I'm curious, and I'm going to put you on the spot here because I'm just I'm curious when you have a venerable member of any profession on on the line. What are what are some of the things that you've seen in the the last ten years of law that have changed completely? That have just changed completely from when you first started. Like the evolution of law as a profession. What can you give us so that you can? Uh, I, I'm curious to know that. Well, you know that that's an interesting question because it's changed a lot. I mean, just when I started here, uh, when I first um, moved to uh, Phoenix, it was a substantially smaller town, um, and just the the advent of the size of this community has necessarily changed so many things and so one of the things that's really changed a lot technology is is for the good uh, it's changed the practice of law it's changed how we present evidence it's changed how we evaluate things there's just a, a lot of pretty amazing things that that have happened because of that. I mean, just to give you an example. Now, and Maricopa County, I think, is is far and away more advanced in some ways than a lot of other places uh, around the country. I'm not saying we're at the cutting edge, but in some ways we, we are right there. Uh, but everything except in justice courts, we file everything electronically. So I can uh, you know, if the if the if the deadline is today, I don't have to beat the clock and get it there by five o'clock. I have as long as I can, you know, that day, and just file everything electronically. Um, and the way courts have adapted to the presentation of evidence in trials and hearings with electronics and uh, just the technology goes with it, that's to me, even in the last ten years, uh, that's pretty stunning uh, as to how much. That has changed the practice of law, and I think for the better, personally. I don't doubt that for a second. So, well, Tim, so people, for, for folks who are listening, and whether it's a matter that is something where, where folks need to come together and sue a developer, or it's they need to reach out to their city council person or elected officials because they're not happy with something going on from a development standpoint. How would you recommend that, 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 that folks get organized and prepared to start the fight, for, for, for lack of a better term? That's a great question, George, because um, – and, and, and I'm going to take you back to the organization that, that I came to know in my uh, golf course case in Ahwatukee. It was a group of homeowners who got together, and they literally created a nonprofit um, entity. Now that's that's a that's a little out of the ordinary, but the point is you need to have people that come together, and you can't just count on one or two people who think they know everything. But but it's like anything, the more people you have, the more brains you have thinking about it, the better the options are that you're going to figure things out. But these people came together. They created a. Um, uh, they created a nonprofit corporation because they knew we were going to try and raise money to try and help fight the developer because it was really through this organization, it was called Save the Lakes, 
that uh, money was contributed, and when the developer, the second, the developer that bought the property in 2015 came in and went out on a, um, a, a, a PR binge to try and convince the community to allow it to change the CCRs, Sage Lakes went out on their own uh, organized uh, arrangements of, of having people communicate with the different media outlets and communicate with different people and you know you just get people who get together and say we're not going to let this happen we're not just going to yell about it we're going to think about it and find people who can help us and then act on it from that standpoint amen to that you know it's certainly one thing to be speaking your mind and and making noise but quite another to actually pull everybody together and and get organized and in that case it was certainly effective so i appreciate that very much it, 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 it really was, and I'll tell you, uh, to me, again, the more people you have thinking about an issue, the more likelihood you're going to find some kind of a solution. We don't always like the solutions, but there are going to be solutions, and it, the, you know, but you've got to have people who are willing to sit down there and just think about it. And going back to that issue, rule application and, and conclusion, I mean, it's just got to be really thought through and not just by one set of uh, ears. Excellent. Well, Tim, any any final words, and let people know where where they can track you down if they are interested. Well, <laughs> after forty six years, I do what I want to do. <laughs> I am I am actually in the bar. Uh, you can you can find and let me let me put a plug in right now. The state bar of Arizona has changed dramatically. And uh, not just in the last 10 years, but in the last 10 years, pretty significantly. And the State Bar now has a program on Refer a Lawyer. And you can go to the State Bar's website, and they've got all kinds of different categories of legal help that people might need. And they then can, uh, through that State Bar website, find lawyers. Uh, because to me, while I get advertising, and, and one of the guys that a couple of the guys, the class ahead of me, were the first ones. Uh, Van Osteen uh, were the first guys to do advertising, and they got called on the carpet by the state bar, and they went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, and they said, "You can advertise, but advertising is one thing, but you just really need to find people who know what they're doing." And the state bar's website is a great resource to give you uh, what different lawyers can or cannot do. Uh, not necessarily what every lawyer does, but but because of that program. There are some lawyers who put themselves out of this is what I can do. Excellent. Uh, but it, it, a very good resource. Maricopa County also has a referral. Maricopa County Bar Association has a referral uh, a, a program for lawyers as well, if people call there. Well, we will link to both of those in the notes of the show. Anything else, Centauri? Well, no, you know, answered all my questions. We, that was fantastic. We, we have the, uh, the oral argument of the appeal that the developer and the former owner made is coming up next week on the 22nd. So we probably won't hear for several months after that, but uh, I'm, I'm anticipating we're just going to keep rolling and go from there. Excellent. Okay. Well, Tim, thank you so much for, uh, for your time today. My pleasure. I enjoyed it. Thank you both. And thanks, as always, for listening. Do us a favor and uh, subscribe to the show. Share it with a friend. 
And as always, keep questioning because struggle is real. Before I go, quick announcement. I've been asked by so many people over the past couple of years about how do I start a podcast that I've developed and released a course that will teach you exactly how to do that step-by-step from figuring out the kind of show that you want to have to understanding how all the technology works behind it and then how to get great guests and uh, keep the thing moving and how to grow it. So if you're interested in that, check it out. You can go to georgegrombacher.com forward slash podcast course and you'll find it there. You can just go to the website. I'll also list that in the notes of the show.